Thank you for allowing me to be back today. I was hoping I still had a job, uh, but we had just a couple of great weeks getting to go away with our students to Centrifuge and then join our New York City mission trip team uh, this week. So thank you. Uh, thank you to Trey and thank you to Wilson who filled in the last couple of weeks uh, for me as we, as I gave them some pretty challenging passages actually. So Judges is not a softball text to preach through. This morning we're going to be in Judges 12. If you want to go ahead, go ahead and turn there in your Bible, finishing up the judgeship of Jephthah, and then an additional three judges that we'll look at in the second half of chapter 12 today. Now, last week while I was gone, Trey had one of the most disturbing stories in the entire book of Judges, and I'm so encouraged to see that so many people still believe in Jesus after last week's passage. But he is still on his throne, and he reigns, and we need to continue to work our way through challenging texts like this. Not every story in the Bible is designed for you to leave on cloud nine. You get the full spectrum of human emotions in this book that we're studying. And so today, uh, we're going to be in Judges 12. The conflict is not between Jephthah and some foreign power like the Canaanites or the Ammonites or the Midianites. It's actually a conflict between Jephthah and the people of Ephraim. So if you know who the people of Ephraim are, what we're seeing in Judges 12 is the people of Israel now attacking themselves. Sin has infiltrated the camp to the point that no longer are they fighting against foreign nations because of their sin. They're fighting against one another. This reminds me of cancer. Now, if you're a doctor in the room, bear with me just for a moment. And if I'm saying anything wrong, you can come up to me after the service. But I began thinking about how the Israelites are now attacking themselves. And as I understand it, cancer is when your own cells begin to attack themselves. Now, normally our bodies, when cells get old or when they get damaged, our bodies go through a process of cell division, and that's normally a very healthy process. But when cancer comes in, this orderly process breaks down. And these abnormal or these damaged cells, they begin to take over. And they rapidly multiply. And they form tumors, which sometimes are cancerous tumors, that can spread to nearby tissues so what are the differences then between healthy cells within the human body and cancerous cells? A quick WebMD search gave me these results. Cancer cells grow in the absence of signals telling them to grow, while normal cells only grow when they receive the appropriate signal. Cancer cells ignore signals that normally tell cells to stop dividing or to die. Cancer cells invade nearby areas and they spread to other areas of the body while normal cells stop growing when they encounter other healthy cells. And most normal cells do not travel to different parts of the body. Cancer cells can actually hide from the immune system because the immune system normally eliminates those damaged or abnormal cells. And then cancer cells can also trick the immune system into helping cancer cells stay alive and continue to grow. 
Now, if we have an oncologist in the room today, you might be saying none of that is true. But according to WebMD, and everything on the internet is most certainly true. So this has to be the case. Now, while there's a lot more we could say about cancer, I'll leave that to the medical professionals, but there is a correlation between cancer and between sin. Sin spreads quickly throughout the camp in the same way that cancer cells spread quickly throughout our body. Sin tricks us into thinking that it is good and right and something that we need in the same way that these cancer cells can trick our immune system into thinking that those cells are actually healthy. You see, as we work our way through this chapter today, we're going to point out three observations that the author is trying to communicate to us. Number one, jealousy leads to division. Number two, division leads to destruction. And number three, God's plan is still unfinished. So number one, jealousy leads to division. Number two, division leads to destruction. And then number three, God's plan is unfinished. Number one, jealousy leads to division. In the beginning of this chapter, we hear from the people of Ephraim. But we've heard from them before as we worked our way through Judges. If you remember in chapter 8, the people of Ephraim complained to Gideon because they did, he did not call on them to assist in defeating the Midianites. And if you remember in that particular story, Gideon is extremely diplomatic with the Ephraimites. In fact, we're told in chapter 8, verse 3, that because of the way that Gideon treated the Ephraimites, their anger subsided against him. But in chapter 12, we see them complaining again that Jephthah did not include them when he decided to defeat the Ammonites. In fact, they're so mad, we're told in verse 1 of chapter 12, we will burn your house over you with fire. But the question we should be asking is, why does Ephraim care so much about being included in these battles? They were taken care of. They were provided for. They were spared death. But they're not happy. And the reason they're not happy is because they wanted to make a name for themselves. Their tribe, their clan, they wanted to be included so that the stories that are in the book of Judges, that the people of Ephraim could be lifted up high and mighty. They were jealous. They wanted to be included in all of these battles. And this jealousy ultimately leads to division within the nation of Israel. Jealousy, if you think about it, has actually led to division since the beginning of the biblical narrative. Think about it for a moment. Genesis chapter 3 Adam and Eve want to be like God. They're jealous, so they eat of the fruit that God specifically told them not to. And they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. It all began over jealousy. God recognized Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. Cain is jealous of Abel. He kills his brother. Sarah forces Abraham to remove Hagar and Ishmael from their house. Why? Because she's jealous of Hagar. Jacob and his mother trick Isaac and Esau. Why do they do that? Because Isaac has a better relationship with Esau than he has with Jacob. 
It's jealousy. Joseph's brothers throw him into a pit and sell him off into slavery because Jacob, excuse me, Joseph is the favorite son of Jacob. And his other brothers do not like that. That's just within the book of Genesis that we see jealousy rearing its ugly head within the people of God and causing division. Every sin, in some way, can go back to either pride or jealousy. So it's so easy in this age of social media that we live in to feel like our life is not what it should be. But let me remind you of something in case you didn't know this. Social media is not reality. Let me explain to you how this works. When my wife, who's quite the social media poster, posts on Facebook or Instagram, have you ever seen her post a picture of Beckett punching his sisters? No. Has she ever posted a video of us trying to sit down for a family dinner? No. We all post the best moments of our lives. There's very few social media posts or pictures where siblings are punching and fighting one another or people are crying or frowning. When we post on social media, we are portraying the best parts of our life. That's not the entire story. So do not allow the dressed up, fake, and often phony Instagram and Facebook posts that we see lead you to believe that your life isn't all it could be. Trevin Wax wrote a great book a few years ago called This Is Our Time. Here's what he says. Faithful Christian living involves turning away from self and toward God. A daily exercise of remembering that we were made to know and love God that we were made to be known and loved by God, and that God, not us, is at the center of all things. Our phones distract us from these central truths by telling a different story, and their myths transform us into shells of the humans that God has called us to be. Your posts are not reality. This is reality, brothers and sisters. In this room, looking one another in the eye, having conversations. Bob was talking about the the youth workers that we worked with this week that were local people from New York City, teenagers. They got class credit for participating and volunteering. I can't tell you how many of them. It's difficult to have conversations with them because they're so used to being on their phone all of the time. Now, in this particular passage, the people of Ephraim were duped into thinking that their lives should have been much better than what God was currently giving them. Because they weren't involved in fighting the Ammonites or the Canaanites, somehow that meant that God was less interested in them or that somehow he loved them less. But that's not true. He loved the men of Ephraim because he made a covenant with his people to love them, not because of their ability to fight, but because his word said that he will remain faithful to his people. And the jealousy that the Ephraimites had toward Jephthah created this massive division within the camp of Israel. And ultimately, this division leads to 
destruction. Jephthah, unlike Gideon, he's not going to put up with the nonsense of the Ephraimites. Gideon was very diplomatic. Jephthah is not. Look at verses 4 through 6 in this passage. Here's what it says. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. This is a tragic day for the nation of Israel. This isn't 42,000 Midianites, Ammonites, Canaanites, Jebusites. This is God's people destroying God's people. 42,000 Ephraimites were destroyed. The phrase that had referred to the Gileadite fugitives fleeing from Ephraim, it was used previously in another passage, but here it's actually applying to Ephraimite fugitives fleeing from Gilead. So when the men of Ephraim approached the Jordan, they were asked to say Shibboleth, and the man pronounced it wrong. For instance, this past week when we were in New York, I was stopped regularly, and people said, where are you from? And I responded, I'm from the South Bronx, but they didn't believe me. (laughs) Imagine that. This is exactly what's happening here. They're going to find out who's an Ephraimite and who's not based on the way they pronounce certain words. I can relate to the story, living in New Orleans. If someone in New Orleans tells you that they live on the other side of the Mississippi River, they're not from New Orleans because that's not what it's called. It's called the West Bank. If you live on the other side of the Mississippi River, you live on the West Bank. Nobody says, I live across the Mississippi River. If you're in New Orleans and somebody says they're heading downtown, they're not from New Orleans because that's not what we call downtown. We call it the CBD. So every area, including Dothan, we have certain ways that we talk, certain dialects, certain nicknames that we use to describe places and figures. This man said Sibboleth instead of Shibboleth. And so the Gileadites seize the man, and they slaughter 42,000 Ephraimites. And God's people destroying God's people, this is what happens when jealousy takes root. When personal preferences, when pride get in the way, it prevents the mission of God from doing what the mission of God is supposed to do. In Judges, the Israelites allow sin to distract them from covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. They begin fighting one another. Today, churches fight and divide over countless issues that are not ultimate. And that's exactly what Satan wants to happen. He wants a divided church. He wants an unhealthy church. Because an unhealthy church and a divided church is a distracted church from the mission of God. That's what he wants. 
He wants us to fight over petty things. He wants us to take secondary and tertiary issues and move them up to the top and fight over the things that don't matter. We will not do that. The gospel is the only thing worth fighting for. We're all going to have preferences. We're all going to have opinions of what we think is best for the church. But to the extent that we keep the gospel, the primary thing that we are centered around, we can deal with everything else. We can get along because we both have the Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts. And we can learn to interact with brothers and sisters that we might not see eye to eye with on this or that. But in this story, the Israelites were not able to do so. And it led, ultimately, to destruction. We're told in this chapter that Jephthah is judge over Israel for six years, and then he is buried in Gilead. I love what one commentator says. He sums up the reign of Jephthah as a judge like this. Jephthah operated as a man with inverted priorities. He was Jephthah first a Gileadite second, and an Israelite third. And he displayed a willingness to sacrifice anything and anyone to satisfy his own ambition. If Jephthah was following wholeheartedly after the Lord, his primary responsibility would have been ensuring that the nation of Israel remained unified, amidst this division but he doesn't he wants to win so he slaughters 42,000 Ephraimites so that he can remain on top that is a picture of power pride and a sinful heart brothers and sisters this church is not about me it's not about you it is about Jesus Christ he is the one who rules this building he is the one that we submit to And unfortunately, for Jephthah and the people of Israel in Judges 12, the jealousy which led to division ultimately led to the destruction of God's own people. But number three, we don't leave discouraged because God's plan for his people at this point in the story is unfinished. He continues to use more judges to bring stability and peace to Israel. And in the final verses of Judges 12, we have this list of basically secondary judges. Now, we learned about a couple of these when Wilson preached a couple of weeks ago, Tola and Jer in Judges 10. Now we have another list here. And there's nothing magical, by the way, in the second half of chapter 12. There's nothing magical in this portion of the text. But it's obviously here because God wanted to include it here. Sometimes parts of Scripture that we read don't have the flashiness or the intrigue. Great stories like we read about with Gideon and Samson and Deborah. But here we have these three judges and very little is said about them. So let's examine them very briefly. Number one, Ibzon of Bethlehem. Here's what we're told. We know that he had 30 sons. He had 30 daughters, and he was able to secure both wives and husbands for these sons and daughters. These marriages were important because they extended the political influence 
of Ibzan during his reign as a judge. What we see here is actually healthy family dynamics. Contrast that with the story of Jephthah, whom we know was born by a prostitute. And now with these judges, especially Ibzan, we have 30 sons, 30 daughters. They all get married and they continue to have their own families. It's a contrast between an unhealthy family dynamic and a healthy family dynamic. We're told that Ibzan judged Israel for seven years. That's all we're told about him. Number two, Elon, the Zebulonite. And we're told absolutely nothing significant about him whatsoever in this text. Other than his judgeship occurred for 10 years. So keep that in mind. You have 10 years for Elon, 7 years for Ibzon, and then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Perithonite, judged Israel 8 years, the text tells us. We're told that he had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and they rode on 70 donkeys. I know what you're thinking. Could we have just ended the sermon by now? This has nothing to do with anything. Yes, it does. It's important. Donkeys in ancient Israel were always a sign of peaceful times. Horses and chariots were used in times of war, in times of conflict, in times of violence. What the author of Judges is communicating to us is that these three judges experienced great peace during their reigns as judge. Seven years, ten years, eight years, that's 25 years of peace that Israel endured. Now let me ask you a question. Based on the way that Jephthah's judgeship ended, did Israel deserve 25 years of peace? Don't you see God's grace in this passage? They did not deserve 25 years of peace. Brothers and sisters, because of our sin, none of us deserve any peace in our lives whatsoever. Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us. What we see in this passage is God's unmerited favor towards his people in spite of the fact that Jephthah was a wicked, horrible dude. And by the way, you and me are wicked, horrible dudes and gals. And yet God extends his grace towards us. These three judges They don't have glamorous stories. By the time we finish the book of Judges, none of you will remember their names. You're going to remember Deborah and Gideon and Samson, the typical, usual suspects. But we have, in the second half of chapter 12, 25 years of peaceful living. Peaceful times, they don't always bring excitement because there's not a lot of controversy happening. There's not a lot of things going on, which is why the reigns of these judges and Shamgar and Tola and Jer, nobody remembers their names. You know why they don't remember their names? Because nothing happened. Because there was peace within the land. Deborah, Samson, which we'll begin studying next week, these are the judges that everyone remembers. You could argue in many ways that these minor judges that we have just glossed over in many ways are actually better judges for the people of Israel than the stories that we read about Gideon and Deborah and Samson. 
These small, minor judges remind us that the goal of life is faithfulness to God, not flashiness before God. If God gives you a platform or a ministry to reach thousands of people for Christ, praise the Lord that he gives you that opportunity. But brothers and sisters, more than likely, tomorrow morning you're going to wake up and go to work, and then you're going to come home, and you're going to take care of your family, and you're going to cut the grass, and you're going to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, if, you, if you're like me. There's nothing flashy about any of that. And does that somehow mean that you're less significant in the eyes of God because of it? Of course not. The goal of following after Jesus is faithfulness. If God has placed you as a teacher in a school, teach to the glory of God and love the students that God has given you. If God has made you a doctor or a nurse, use medicine so that people know that there is a great physician who can not only heal them physically, but more importantly, can heal them spiritually. If you're a banker or an accountant, make sure the people that you interact with know it's not the financial bottom line that matters, it's the spiritual bottom line that really counts. Whatever sphere of influence job you have, God can use you for his glory. Christ's atoning death on the cross is sufficient for all of our professions and for all people. As we were in New York last week, one afternoon, myself, Andrew, who's the executive director of graffiti, and a few of others of us, we walked through the park, and we just stopped and asked homeless men and women if they wanted a cup of coffee or if they wanted a sandwich. And one conversation that one of our team members had was with a man named William, and William is addicted to heroin. And in the midst of that conversation, towards the end of it, he basically said, I have to leave now so that I can go shoot up. And he walked about five feet away from us as me and Andrew were engaged in another conversation. And he shoots heroin, literally five feet away from us. Now, Andrew and Graffiti, too, are in the South Bronx engaging with homeless people, drug addicts, people from poverty every single day. They have church every Sunday night, so they'll meet tonight at, I believe, 6 o'clock. And I promise you, Andrew Mann's church will never explode. He will never have a church, more than, more than likely, of 50 to 75 people. But is he doing what the Lord has called him to do? You see, we have it so messed up, as American Christians especially. We think the only successful pastors and churches are the ones that you read about in the news, the ones that have 50,000 people. It's as if the rest of the churches are meaningless, and they're not doing things for God. Andrew Mann and his ministry up in graffiti is doing more for the kingdom of God than many of the churches I've seen in my lifetime. He was walking through the park. We picked up a man who was high on heroin. His pants were halfway down to his knees. That will never get written about in Baptist press. Those stories do not exist. 
in the mainstream media. Why am I telling you this? What you do day in and day out, loving your neighbors, caring for the elderly in your neighborhood, encouraging that coworker who's having a difficult time in their marriage, those things matter. That's how lives are changed. The Holy Spirit works through average and boring and mundane people like you and me. That's how he works. God will use you. You know, the wonderful thing about the book of Judges, if you read the entire book, here's what you're going to pick up on. Judges chapter 3. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Judges chapter 8, verse 32. Gideon, the son of Joash, died. Judges chapter 10, verse 2. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shamir. That's talking about Tola. Judges 10.5, and Jer died and was buried in Cain. Judges 12.7, Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Judges 12.10, then Isbon died and was buried at Bethlehem. Judges 12.12, then Elon died and was buried at Agilon. Judges 12.15, then Abdon the son of Hillel died and was buried at Pirathon. No offense to any of you in this room, but I'm not counting on you to be my Savior. And you shouldn't count on me to be your Savior. Because our obituaries, every single one of our obituaries, will be just like the ones we read about in Judges. Every single one of us will die. There is only one obituary that ended differently. And Paul actually writes about it in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the twelve then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep then he appeared to James then to all the apostles then he appeared last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me so as we continue our study of these judges in the weeks that we have left. Always remember that God's plan at this point in the history of Israel is unfinished. The Old Testament heroes that we read about, they all fall short and they all point us to someone better, someone greater than Deborah, greater than David, greater than Solomon, Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, none of these men and women can live up to what Jesus comes to do in the first century A.D. So as we read these stories, be thankful that our faith is in the one who died for the sins of his people, but equally as important, was resurrected, brought back to life, so that we can have life abundantly in him. If you do not know King Jesus today, put your faith in him. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Following Jesus will cost you everything. It will. But following the ways of this world will ultimately give you nothing. He is worth our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us for stories like we have today with Jephthah and Ibzon and 
all of these small, seemingly meaningless judges, but we realize that sometimes the faithful, the average person does more for the kingdom of God than the one that gets all the accolades and all of the fame. So I pray for all of us in this room that we would remember that the goal of our lives is faithfulness to you in whatever it is you have called us to do, wherever it is you have called us to go. If there's a brother or sister in Christ this morning who's discouraged and, and they feel like their life is not all that it could be, I want you to stop believing that lie. If Christ is in you, your identity is secure. Rest in him. And if there's anyone in this room who has never repented of their sin and turned to Christ, I pray that you would find me or someone close to you after the service today so that we could talk about what it means to follow after Jesus. Father, as we enter this time of reflection and response, you know every individual heart. You know what's on our hearts and minds. Help us to respond appropriately and obediently to the proclamation of your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.